Aaron and I want to start with a really big, heartfelt first bite thank you. We have been so encouraged by your kind word, your messages, your glowing reviews of First Bite. This has been a labor of love for the last year and a half, and we we are grateful for y'all being on the First Bite journey with us and supporting us because we I mean, we work full time and this is this is a full time gig on top of it. And we do it with joy because we understand that the world of early intervention pediatrics needs evidence in it. So we sweet talked the folks with speechtherapypd.com. And as a thank you giveaway, we have come up with a, a, a free pod course subscription. So once we hit 130 iTunes written reviews, we're going to pull another name out of the hat, probably with the assistance of an ever so handsome goose and a bear. And that person will get a free PodCourse subscription. So over 175 hours of continuing ed plus 19 new continuing hours each month. And there's a new episode every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other Thursday, and the short course, nine series long, all things ethics with Elise. And that's our way of giving back. So thank you. So please keep the reviews coming. We only have a few more to go, but once we hit 130, then we will pull that name out of a hat. Happy 2020. Thank you for joining us on the journey. And Seriously, y'all rock. Thank you. Hey, so by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite, followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hey there, listener. This is Dr. Dakota Sharp, audiologist, clinical assistant professor, and lifelong learner, inviting you to join me on an exciting new podcasting journey known as On the Ear. As you know, audiology is ever-evolving, so it's critical as professionals that we learn and grow as well. Every other Thursday, On the Ear will be interviewing a variety of clinicians and researchers spanning a wide range of hearing and communication topics. From pediatrics to geriatrics, cochlear implants to vestibular, speech to hearing, and everything in between, this podcast will provide exciting insights that you can use in your clinical practice. Each episode of On the Ear is available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs when you complete the accompanying pod course through speechtherapypd.com. Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culvertown, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation. So there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. 
Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts. To break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee Byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. So today's episode is one of those where I sort of feel like folks already have their rotten tomatoes ready to hurl because y'all, we are tackling the evidence behind neuromuscular electric stimulation, aka NMES, and its use in pediatrics. Yep, so cue all the emotional triggers and feelings. All right, so here's why I'm covering this topic because y'all, I am sick of folks touting a certain type of stimulation as being appropriate for our infants and toddlers as the best way, quote unquote, you can't see my air quotes, but I'm doing them, as the best way to address their pediatric feeding disorder, especially when the pediatric feeding disorder has multiple etiologies, as well as when the family tells me that the infant's post-CVA with hemiparesis and, oh, by the way, mic drop, baby has a seizure disorder. Y'all, this is not okay. But instead of me shouting from the mountaintops, which I'm secretly doing in my head, but whatnot, I wanted to invite an expert and share the research about what can and should be done and deep dive into the evidence behind it. Y'all, we are getting into all the nitty gritty details today with the one and only Rick McAdoo, MSCCC, SLP, Vice President and Co-Founder of AMP Care LLC, and Adjunct Professor at Texas Christian University, TCU. So Rick, thanks for coming on today. I'm, I'm not going to lie, I kind of took it as a sign when I went to set the room up to record us, and I found that Chewy had made a very large bad choice in my bedroom floor. So some heavy duty cleaning later, I kind of felt like, y'all, we are really already into it and prepping for the firestorm that's about to roll out. So hi. What you thought you were going to get into, you're already into it this morning. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That, that big Chewbacca Dawson, he sure does keep me on my toes. Um, there you go. Digestion's working. Yes, he did. <laughs> It's all the extra turkey he's been sneaking off the little bit. There you go. Yes, yes. Okay, so um, y'all, I met Rick through um, a dear friend, Vince Clark, and Vince was on talking about um, uh, scoping and its appropriateness in use um, a couple of episodes back, and Vince's past president over in Georgia. And so I was on, we, you know, sidebar conversation. So I get done recording with Vince and um, pitching a fuss about how um, I just had a family tell me that, uh, that they thought it would be best to go have their medically complex infant um, receive some stimulation. And I did what I could to educate, but it fell on deaf ears. And Vince goes, well, you know what my, what job I just took? And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? So he starts telling me about AMP care. And Vince is like a pillar within the dysphagia community. He follows the evidence, right? So I sat down and actually really listened to him. And he said, hey, I got an idea. How about I introduce you to my new boss, Rick? And I was like, absolutely. So one um, word vomitous conversation later, I managed to sweet talk Rick on. Yay, Rick. <laughs> how in the world? Tell me about this, how you got into this, how this came to be. I want the back story, please, sir. Sure, sure. I'm going to age myself or date myself, whatever the term would be. I've been working in this area for quite a long time. I graduated in, with my master's in 90, in December. So it was February of 91, I guess, when I started working. Went through the VA system. I've been all in the adult and the neurogenic hospital settings all my career. The way this started for me was one of the first things we had to do uh, when I was hired was to get 
Logaman certified, I guess, if you want to call it that. But we had to attend that prior to getting our fluoroscopy privileges at the hospital. And my boss required that. And so. Wait, did you actually get to meet Jerry Logaman? I did. I did. I trained with her. Well, I say I trained. I took her course. I didn't train with her. I took her course in Chicago. I actually went up from Texas. It was one of the the benefits, I guess, of being out early. And But I think my mindset as I was coming out of my master's training, I can tell you, and I, I, I talk about this in, when we lecture with AmpCare and our certification trainings, I had one lecture on dysphagia. So, and it was one of those lectures where we all looked at each other like, is this going to be on the test? That, that, can, that can give you an idea of the difference between our CFs coming out now and how they're much more educated around this very complex problem that spans the life form. So, you know, once I got in touch and with taking the Logan course and my boss was very active and my supervisors at uh, the VA health system, you know, they're in their 40s. And if I'm just coming out as a CF and I've had one lecture, what they've learned everything they've had to know in the field. And that was, it's still somewhat of a process for us now. It's not like we're all trained in everything we need to know when we're coming out of grad school. And it's a little bit awkward because it's a little bit like a physician coming out as an orthopedic surgeon and doing his first arthroscopic knee surgery after he graduates. It just, it's a little bit awkward for us. But so I was working and most of my therapy, and I think a lot of us that are treating back in those days, the emphasis seemed to be in evaluation. It was all about how can we evaluate this problem? Modified barium swallow, fees, fiber optic endoscopy, ultrasound was being used, CT scan. Everybody was looking for more ways to evaluate this problem. But I had a hard time once I got to the recommendation part of my treatment plan on what I was going to do. And it came down to diet modifications and then compensatory strategies. I didn't really feel like I had a good grasp on what I wanted to do to make a change in what this problem was. So it was by the, I would say the grace of God, but Russ might tell you, Russ Campbell and Rhonda Polanski. Rhonda's the uh, speech language pathologist, works with me as well as Russ who's the physical therapist, were working in a rehab. And it was a matter of me seeing Russ have a, one of our patients, um, the Joint Commission, if anybody works in the hospital settings, are very familiar with them. Their re- request for us or our, their recommendation from their uh, assessment was we need to do more interdisciplinary care. And that became a buzzword in the early 90s. That's everybody needed to do more interdisciplinary care. So where I used to treat all of my patients in my office and come back and drop them off at the gym and say hello and grab another patient. Now I'm actually starting to treat patients while I'm in the physical therapy and occupational therapy gym. So he had a patient in the standing frame. And and this is kind of a funny story. Some of you have trained with me. You may have laughed at this already, but I tell it because I know it's going to be the first time for some. But So I was a little paranoid. I was a little nervous. I was two years of experience. And now I get to go do what we've been doing in my office in front of a lot of people. And I thought what we did in our office was pretty strange anyway, the oral motor exercises and mirror work, you know, all of the things that we do. So I walk into this physical therapy gym and he's got a patient who I've never seen out of his wheelchair now standing up eye to eye because he's pumped him up into this standing frame. So now I'm walking in, he has things plugged in the wall, electrodes on the legs, and, you know, a lot of high-tech therapeutic options. And I'm walking in, and I, I kid everyone's, it was like the Jetsons and the Flintstones. So I'm walking in with my cup of ice and my laryngeal mirror and my tongue depressor, and he's got all of these things plugged in the wall. So it didn't take long. And Russ and I had a few what I would call barley sodas after work. We were newlyweds and young. And that's kind of where we get to know a little <laughs> bit about each other. But it didn't take me long to figure out, okay, what is it you're doing? And he was really curious about what I was doing with a laryngeal mirror. And I thought I was so cool because I got to go to surgery and get my sterilized laryngeal mirrors. You know, I felt like it was special. So it didn't take long to realize, okay, he was doing muscle rehabilitation. 
And in the dysphagia world, there's a lot of muscle involvement. And so we're actually tasked with changing some physiology through muscle rehabilitation. So it was in that mindset. Now, this was pre-vital stem. This was pre-any NMES techniques. And I just remember as I watched him do that, I kind of forced him to sit down with me and said, look, I am not doing a lot here. I feel like if this is going to be my therapeutic options, I'm not going to make much of a change. I didn't feel like. So I felt like there was some things we could do to change the afferent sensory pathway, create a change for their efferent motor pathway through this technology that Russ was working on legs and arms and backs. So we took a long time to evaluate how we might be able to use something that could be perceived as painful for our elderly patients and even for our pediatric patients. So we had to really think through uh, the principles of using NMES and what would be considered mm-hmm. painful on the most rich and diverse sensory system in our body, which is the head and neck. So we took a very careful approach to that and walked through a lot of, I would call it R&D, self-exposure to stimulation and parameters and electrode designs uh, to the extent of almost like wasps were stinging your neck. I mean, it was very painful if you didn't use the right parameters. So right away, I recognized that there was there was a very significant need for the correct parameters or you're going to be, it's going to be painful. So that's where it all started. And that's where our initial investigation started to, first of all, recognize what is the mechanical cause? What is it you were wanting to stimulate? This was Russ's question. And I, I didn't know, you think I'm thinking in my mind the swallow, but you know, I knew decreased hyaluronic elevation is one of our primary problems. I had learned that from the research, but you know, I, I, what moves the hyoid forward upward, what moves the laryngeal structures forward and upward to ask me for those muscles. I, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have popped them out and quoted them. I had to look that up, I had to pull my book out again. Right. So recognizing that and then starting to think through, okay, if that's what you're wanting to do, there are some areas where we could stimulate potentially and maybe get that to facilitate what you're looking to stimulate and not to swallow, not to posterior pharynx. There's a lot of things that were impossible, but there are some things to do with NMES that I think hopefully today in our discussion, we can clean up the water a little bit because I think there's a lot of techniques that are being used called NMES, but are not actually used as NMES. In other words, you have to go through a sensory level to get to a motor level. If you don't get to that motor level, your sensory stimulation, that is not NMES. So I think hopefully we can clarify some of that. But that's that's where my background started. That's where my initial interest became, I guess it became of interest by working with Russ in that PT round, recognizing that there wasn't a whole lot of therapeutic options for us. And, and I think you probably would agree, I mean, if you ask thought leaders now, what, what is our go-to therapy? What is the thing that everyone should be doing for a dysphagia based on XYZ mechanical cause? I don't know that it's standard. I don't know that we have a good feel for that yet. No, we still don't. I mean, I I had a dysphagia class and it was an amazing dysphagia class. I did not have a PEDS dysphagia class. I was one of the last that started having PEDS dysphagia classes. It was like one night and school and that was it. And now it's starting to become more prevalent that there's like a separate option. It may not be mandatory, but at least it's available. But I finished undergrad. I finished my master's in December of 09. So I've been out for 11 years now. Is that how long it's been? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm like, wait, math is hard. I just got done spending all the monies on back to school supplies and cleaning up dog poo. So like switch gears. (laughs) That sounds right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's not okay. All right. So we have like a ridiculous amount of stuff to cover. So I'm just going to hit it, hon. And then please direct me uh, out of my rambling. So yeah. Yes. No, this is perfect. But like, we all want to know the why, like when you have a moment of clarity, when you have that aha moment and you do something profound, it's the why behind. And 
I have felt that way with my kids. I have felt that way with my pediatrics when they're like, well, this isn't working. And I'm like, well, you know, we've, your kid has got major hemiparesis. We've got this, this, and this going on. It's going to be an interdisciplinary approach. We need OT. We need PT. We have torticollis. We've got, oh, by the way, unchecked acid reflux, like with the peds. A lot of times it is, there are so many more potential etiologies, but I have, and I know my colleagues have lost kids and infants to mom and pop shops down the street that have a particular brand product and they promise just to basically stimulate and fix. And I'm like, it doesn't work that way. Also, I'm pretty confident your kid has EOE. So maybe we should also look at that as a dual diagnosis. Okay. All right. So what are the differences between AMP care and other FDA cleared NMES? I always like to start with, you know, the differences, first of all, between NMES. I think they're, as they're marketed, as their parameters are used and FDA cleared, there are three products out there, us and two others. And I, I think when you look at the parameters that are selected with some of the other techniques, they would fit more for a physical therapist using it on a quad as far as waveforms and frequency. And those are two very important parts of our protocol. And I'm not going to go into the details. We go very high into the details in the training because we want you to be an electrotherapist, if there's such a thing, as opposed to a technician. We want you to understand the rationale behind our parameters versus some of the other techniques that are out there. And then if you look at from the standpoint of how long the stimulation works, how long is it on? And I think the biggest difference between amp care and the other techniques are this is more of a muscle exercise. This is a five-second work, 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 relax for 25, 20, or 15 seconds, depending on what the settings would be, based on exercise physiology rules. In other words, 80% accuracy. We can't add more weight to a swallowing exercise necessarily, but you can add more repetitions. And when I say we can't add more weight, I'm talking about through the AMP care technique. And I'll talk a little bit about that on how we utilize bolus with this technique. When the stimulation is on, because we can achieve movement and achieve movement comfortably, we're changing the physiology of the swallowing structure. So our parameters are low enough so that the muscle can contract in a comfortable manner and it can pull the hyoid forward and upward. And when you do that, you stretch open the laryngeal vestibule. So you think about that. That's the airway. When this, when this technique starts, we're stretching open the airway. The patient needs to swallow and close this stretched open airway. It creates this intrinsic resistance. So that's the so neuroplasticity, task-specific, repetitive, resistive exercise. So you can't get more task-specific with swallowing than swallowing. I think I'm pretty much, I, I get agreement. I've had some pushback from some key thought leaders on, hey, what's the best therapy for swallowing? My answer is swallowing because there's, I would think I can count 29 muscles in one to one and a half seconds just from the lips to the upper esophagus that fire in one to one and a half seconds. I can't tease out the posterior pharynx. I can't tease out the upper esophageal sphincter. I can't, you know, I, you know, try to tease out some of those things, but to get all of those things to happen in that one to one and a half second, I need them to swallow. So I know there's some things we could do to make it more effortful, which also leads to that neuroplasticity rule. And then you do it repetitive. We do it 60 to 72 to 90 times in 30 minutes following this stretching effect. So when the stimulation comes on, we don't offer a bolus. This is a dry swallow. For a peed patient or some of our elderly patients that can't follow instruction, it might be a cold, wet spoon. So you give them that cold, wet spoon, the autonomic response kicks in. They're taking as much moisture as they can off of that spoon to trigger that swallow before the stimulation goes off. And if they can get that to occur, they're overcoming that stretching effect. And the latest research, which is on our website, demonstrates that it is a there is a perturbation. It's, it's a resistance to what we're doing. If you if you look at picking up, I we, we use an example of backpacks. If you have 20 backpacks with 50 pounds in each backpack, at least that's the instruction. And I say, Michelle, I want you to pick up those 20 backpacks. They're loaded with 50 pounds and you want to put them on the table. 
Well, your first 10 repetitions of that, picking up a backpack of 50 pounds, putting it on the table, you recognize that, yes, indeed, there's 50 pounds in this bag, and maybe I'm having to bend my legs a little bit, and I'm using some exertion, some effort. Well, little do you know, the 11th bag doesn't have any weight in it. So what is your response when you pick up that backpack expecting 50 pounds? You fling it up. Now, that's not something, that, I mean, everyone understands that. It's not something I'm trying, that's a theory. No, it's what happens. The reason that happened was because the first 10 bags had 50 pounds. There was exertion and effort. And when you take it off, that creates a speed effect. So I think what, what the tricky part about clinicians understanding what this technique does is I'm not trying to create an, an immediate effect with this exercise. I'm not trying to say, do this 10 times and then have a bolus because your swallowing is going to be faster. Rehab doesn't work that way. This is more of if I do that over a period of time, that exertion, that effort over a period of time, effortful swallowing over a period of time rewires and reworks, at least the theory behind that is creating more and more pathways through that afferent sensory, I feel it, to up through the brainstem to the cortex and then having that patient purposefully try to swallow that efferent motor cortex back through that system to get that response. That's what we try to do with amp care is get them to do effortful swallows against this intrinsic resistance. So talking about the parameters, how can you do that? You have to be able to demonstrate that under fluoroscopy or under fees. We have those videos on the website where you can actually see the hyoid moving forward and upward and you can see a stretching effect to that laryngeal vestibule. And then you have that patient swallow to overcome that. And we've chosen through 50 plus years of research and data to support use of NMES on small muscles. In other words, PTs don't just treat the biceps and the quads. They could treat some muscles around the wrist and the hand that are very thin and small. You wouldn't use the same parameters for that. And I can say this. One of the techniques that, that's very common and popular, what, they're on time. How long that stimulation is occurring? It's 59 seconds out of every minute. And that just doesn't fit. When, when we heard of of that technique coming out and, and we were also doing our R&D, I, t- I thought we met the boat. Translate what R&D means. Research and development, just kind of our investigative work. As we're working through our process, we learn that there's another group doing it. And I thought, well, if they were out ahead of us, we've missed the boat. But when we learned what they were doing as a PT, Russ said, well, that's not how I would do it. That's not how I'm trained to use NMES. In fact, before our podcast, I looked up some research prior to, just did a little bit, because pediatrics is not my world necessarily. And, and as an AMP care directive, we we look more at the mechanical cause than we do the age or the diagnosis. But I can definitely tell you the neonates and the infants, the suck, swallow, breathe, this is not the technique for them. Thank you. This is a rehab approach to those that are older. Rick, say it again for the people in the back. For the infants and the neonates, this is not appropriate. I'm happy to say that. What you think, someone, in fact, on the ASHA SIG13 email, just got it. Someone's doing a research trial, a research study with NMES in that neonate population. I need the clinicians that use that, that technique for that population to understand you're not using NMES. These patients cannot tolerate 59 seconds of constant stimulation and create some type of an exercise from that. It's just not, it's just, if you just understand that principle, what can the patient tolerate? The patient can tolerate the sensory capability. And these patients can't give you feedback, these infants. And so I I would have to say, explain to me, in, in my concept of using NMES, that doesn't fit with our approach. Our approach is a rehab approach, and therefore an adult-like swallow. Hyoid has dropped. You're moving into the regular types of foods. I've seen this used at 18 months and up, but I'm not going to say 18 months is up is appropriate. That's not at all what I would say. Pediatric population, and in my world, is a lot like my head and cancer, head and neck cancer populations. There's not one. There's not a cohort of these patients are all the same. Let's separate them in two groups and do two different modalities and see which one did better. So the head and neck cancer group are a lot like the pediatric groups in that 
it's hard to find a cohort of two. In other words, if there's 100 head and neck cancer patients, separating them into 50 and 50 to have two like groups to, to evaluate whether one parameter, one modality is better than another, I think it's very difficult to find patients that are like that. So you have all these, you have 50 case studies in one arm and 50 case studies in another, and they're all a lot different. And you're trying to do this study of, well, did this technique make a difference or not? And what I've seen in a lot of the trials is, you know what, whatever modality you were doing was not much different than traditional therapy. It maybe have been worse. It may be a little bit better, but if eventually it's, it's, were these groups different enough to which patients did better? So I think it comes down to the mechanical cause of what you're looking to target, especially with that head and neck population and also with the pediatric population. Uh, the strokes are fairly similar, but they're even them in their cells, other than location and, and dysfunction and, and mechanical cause. That's where I can figure out the best case patient would be that neurological patient where neuroplasticity rules would apply. And and that's what I see a lot in the peds world is kids get labeled as being picky eaters, right? Or behavioral eaters. And often, especially with the younger population, physicians are hesitant to make referrals to a neurologist for a child that's just behind the developmental curve, right? Like they're delayed, but they're not super delayed. So they wait on it. But you know, I know the gap increases, right? And then finally you get the kid to a neurologist and a lot of these children that were just kind of klutzy or just a little odd or just off to go coincide. I mean, they come back with these major neurologic findings or they had a grade two stroke in utero or, and one little guy who had dysgenesis of the corpus callosum. I, I mean, or one little lady was missing the medal of her cerebellum and that changes your plan of care, right? So, yes. Yeah. Time is brain, right? Yes. You've been waiting, waiting, and it's like you could have made a big difference. Yes. So, okay, so the research that's out there, what research do you have to back the support of? And I think when you talk to, we sit down to two years of age is where y'all have gone so far. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, those have been case studies that we haven't done. Yes. Like I said, it, I think it's challenging, and I, I, I'm, we're open. As a company, we're not falling on the, hey, we've done it. We have a medical product to sell, so let's just go sell it. We're not at that level. As a, as a company, we're clinicians first. And so I'm, I'm way open for pediatric groups to be interested and, and utilize this technology, how we're utilizing it to demonstrate the benefit. Now, it's an exercise. I think that's the heart, the most important thing I want to impress upon anyone listening. I think a lot of people look for, did this, is this 100% or not? And, you know, you think of the cancer population, when you've got a 30% advantage over something else, some might look at that as that's kind of wasn't that much significant to another treatment, but 30% can make a big difference. You know, 70% different percentages can make a big difference for a lot of patients. So I'm, we're more than open to discuss some, some pediatric research. We've had some initial discussions with some clinicians who've understood what we're trying to do and are setting up to do some pediatric trials. But I can tell you one of the things that, before I not answer your question, because I want to get into the research and what we are doing and what we plan to do in the future, I think that as an industry the water is completely muddied. And when I read this study, one of the last studies I read before I jumped on the podcast was basically using NMES compared to traditional exercise. And it wasn't any better. And, and it, was, it was a pediatric population. I think it was within neonates, maybe infants, if I recall. And it was back in 2010 or 2011. I can tell you that a lot of studies, whether it's adults or pediatrics, you look at the abstract anyway, and it just says NMES. It's like this, it's, it's this thing. And it's like, what parameters were they using? It doesn't even say, it just says NMES. Now, again, if it's 2011. Also, I love that you can pull up journal articles like this. This makes my nerdy girl heart happy because that's, that's what we should be doing. Like that's in it. Yeah. 
100%. And then you think, well, and, and the, as a discipline, we think, well, the NMES doesn't work or did or did, you know, that's not how it should be. Now, I would hope to get into, you know, the dis, the parameters. Again, I only had the, the abstract up, but it was just saying NMES does or doesn't. And I think to back up a little bit on parameters, they matter. If you're using the wrong parameters, you can't say you're using NMES. Patients would put the brakes on and it becomes a sensory-laden approach. If that is the case, you're evaluating sensory compared to traditional exercise as opposed to sensory motor compared to traditional exercise. And I think in the physical therapy realm, all of the data would support exercise with NMES is more beneficial than traditional exercise. Not saying traditional exercise doesn't work, but if you want something better and faster, using NMES because of, and I think that's my next level of where we are in this discussion would be the motor, the muscle fiber types. This is where the, I guess the magic can happen. And and that is because of how muscle fibers are recruited when you exercise. So the research demonstrates, be it from ACL repair, uh, hip fractures, different levels of surgery for physical therapy in the physical therapy realm demonstrate that if you can do exercise, it might take you 12 weeks, but you can get there in six or eight if you use NMES with exercise. So it's not about whether exercise works or not. It's about which one would be better and faster. You're asking me, you asked a very pointed question about the the research that's out there. I want to make sure that we cover that. Our research is all based on mechanical cause, and most all of it has been elderly patients, adult patients. It's been some, there's been some pediatric patients that I can quote as case studies. Uh, there's several uh, children's hospitals that are utilizing our technique. And when people ask us, can we use this with peds? And I, I, I think I said that earlier about, you know, the neonates and infants, I would say no, because this is a rehab approach. But if you have a patient who has poor lip seal, poor lip closure, poor mastication. There's, there's 12 mechanical causes that we can list that if that is a dysfunction, that's a listed mechanical cause, this technique could address that in a reasonable fashion. And let me get into the muscle fiber types and so that you can understand when we exercise with lifting weights, whatever it would be, you need to make the exercise, a dynamic activity before you start to recruit what we consider this type 2B or this very fast twitch. In other words, the swallowing muscles are very type type 2B, very fast twitch muscles. They fire in one to one and a half seconds. In order for us to exercise in general terms, when you or I get on the treadmill, we start walking or running and we're fine for the first few minutes, but 10, 15 minutes in, our muscles are starting to get a little bit fatigued, maybe gelatinous, maybe your mind starts to talk to you like, are you going to keep doing this? Because this is kind of becoming a dynamic activity now when it was very easy a few minutes ago. That transition is where a lot of elderly patients, if you're doing something that has any exertion to it, what do they want to do at that point? They want to take a break. And so, yeah, let me take a break. And then the clinician being compassionate would say, hey, let's take a break. That's fine. So they kind of bow out of that exercise right at the minute it was becoming dynamic or exertion. And when you do that repetitively, you're more working that slow twitch muscle fiber, the type ones, the marathon runners, we would call them, as opposed to if you work through that, then your type twos kind of have to take over because that's their job. And then when they have to take over, they don't have very much endurance, but they can become you can become stronger in that manner. So with this technique, and with NMES, with exercise, those type 2B muscle fibers are recruited first. Not only the type 1s, like your normal brain to body would recruit them, but when you recruit them with NMES and you get them to fire into a, a, a depolarized nerve to make that muscle contract, the largest motor neuron in a muscle belly is your type 2B muscle. And when you can get that type 2B muscle fiber to fire and to exercise with the very first repetition, now I'm working type 2B, type 2A, type 1s from the very first repetition with NMES, where traditional exercise has to build it up to an exertion stance. Is that why it's 
five seconds on, 55 seconds off because of the intensity? 25. It's 25 seconds off. So because it's a muscle contraction, think about how obnoxious that would be. Someone doesn't go into a room of gym and just pick up a barbell and hold it for 59 seconds, right? Yeah. And then put it down for one second and then pick it back up and then just hold it. Especially for something that is fast twitch, it's it completes and it's over, the swallow I'm talking about. Yeah. So if you're doing a fast repetition type of exercise, you don't want to do something for long, 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 long periods of time. You want to do it in a timely manner. And then you want to have time to rest and recuperate. So that five-second contraction allows for a good muscle contraction, like a Mendelssohn-type exercise. It's bombarding that afferent pathway up to the brain. You have an efferent response back to complete that swallow before it goes off, and then there's a rest and recuperate phase. Now you get back into exercise physiology. It's about repetitions. It's about task specificity. It's about effort and uh, making it effortful. And I think those are the things that, especially with your pediatric population, the neuroplasticity effects and those patients that you were talking about that are delayed and they end up having some type of a neurological event, those guys are resilient, very, you can, you can take out half of their brain at three years old and they can graduate high school with some minimal characteristics of weakness, but drive and graduate, you know, who would think of that for say a person with lysencephaly, who would think that that the treatment for that would be to remove half of the brain and then that patient would come out to be a normal functioning human being. And and I've seen that. That's the reason I talk about that. So the, the neuroplasticity effect for these neurological patients, especially in the younger patients, um, it's there. It can, it can, you just need to make it you know, as task-specific, as repetitive, as effortful as you can, and you add that component to muscle fiber recruitment philosophy where it's Type 2B first, first repetition, that's a better, faster outcome. No patient wants to do that for longer periods of time. Everybody wants it. It's fast food days now, right? This is our fast food environment. <laughs> hey, it was McAllister Deli yeah. Day, so it was when up There you go. I love McAllister's. We have Jason's Deli here, too. That's another, we have both of those. Yeah, but Jason's for us is all the way downtown and I have to deal with traffic. And the boys made it out of the dentist office without cavities. And I was like, let's go have potatoes. Oh, fantastic. Celebrate ice cream. Yes. Uh, No, 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 (laughs) no. They don't need the sugar. We've got swim lessons later in (laughs) Oyve. Okay. This makes so much more sense because, and I got to be honest, like I've, I've, I've read some research on one of your competitors and um, I kind of feel like it's like they who shall not be named. Not that we've been reading a lot of Harry Potter lately. And uh, we, please know we're like diehard fans. We actually had a birthday party for Harry Potter. It's like a legit thing. Yeah. Uh, my All of my kids went through that as well. So they're out of college now. But nonetheless, they my oldest would read one of those books in one day. Oh, yeah. Easy. Yeah. Yes. But like we... Um, when I when I read the research and I've seen the reviews and it is it is not good, right? So when I hear that people are doing this with like infants and toddlers that again can't articulate, it makes me very apprehensive. Also, the it does just as you explained it, it does not do what it's supposed to do. It just if you want to use it as sensory, there's not a lot of data to support sensory stimulation. But I think the confusion gets in where they're saying it's NMES, but it, I mean, if you just understand how NMES works, I, I wouldn't, if I was truly getting that muscle to contract, and there's data to support that the other technique is not getting movement, they call it sub threshold, sub motor. I can't remember what their terms are, but some of these techniques will call it. We get it to motor and then we take it down just below motor. Well, you either depolarize that nerve to fire the muscle or you don't. And if you don't, then it's sensory. If you do depolarize the nerve and the muscle contracts, you demonstrate movement. I think the easiest way to think about it, too, is we do a wrist demonstration. And I think that's on the website as well. And when you think of a patient who's hemiparetic, cannot move their wrist, right? And I look at that, you can just visualize that arm that's on the, maybe they have a little tray on the wheelchair, right? And I say, all right, Sally, Cindy, whatever, 
the little patient, if it's an adult, Mr. Jones, whatever it is, I really want you to lift that wrist. If I'm working wrist extension, really lift that wrist. Well, if they're hemiparetic and they're paralyzed, what's going to happen when they really try to lift that wrist? They're mentally thinking, I'm trying to lift my wrist. If I put electrodes on the wrist extensors, and then I tell them at the same time that stimulation comes on and it depolarizes that wrist to come up, and they think to their mind that I'm trying to lift that wrist and there's actual movement going on, now you can get some pathway driving going where not only am I just thinking about wanting my wrist to move up, but I'm actually getting it to move up by using the NMES. So guess what's happening with that muscle group where I'm stimulating that wrist extensor? I'm minimizing the disuse because if that arm just sits on the tray all day, that muscle is atrophy. It's If you don't use it, you lose it. So we don't want that to occur. We want them to be using that muscle. And they do the same thing with ACL repair, where they are not allowed to use their quad muscles because they're waiting on the healing. They can stimulate that muscle to minimize disuse atrophy. And that disuse, disuse atrophy is what you have to build back up after that damage. So if it's a neurological event, I say time is brain. You want to get there and start minimizing how that, if they're not swallowing, you swallow seven, eight hundred times a day without thinking about it. And if you've got a peg or you're averse to anything and you're not utilizing your swallowing mechanism, that muscle group is essentially not being utilized. And so we want to minimize that disuse by doing repetitive exercise, contracting that muscle through that afferent, efferent pathway and do it repetitively. And I think 30 minutes, you can get a very, very good rehab session through that. So I think that that's the important part about this technology compared to others is that it does take it to a motor response. It is comfortable. So the parameters are very much different than what's currently out there. So when someone reads a study or a research article and it says NMES, the first question any clinician who's trained in electrophysiology or electrotherapy should ask, what parameters did they use? And what placements did they use? Literally never seen that. I've, I've like, on most of the pediatric reports, they don't cover that. And, and because, and I'll tell you, the argument that I get when I bring it up, the only one that's FDA cleared for that use. Well, if they're talking about one that's FDA cleared that I know of, it's not utilized as an NMES approach. It's sensory. It's just tingling. And tinkling is sensory. I could I could massage their neck and get that afferent response. Yes, but then if you talk to an occupational therapist that's um, highly skilled in sensory motor integration, they specifically say that if you brush too lightly on the surface, it puts a child into fight or flight as opposed to letting them know um, proprioceptively where they are in their space. So if all you're doing is lightly brushing the surface of the skin or just irritating them, then you're triggering an autonomic response that you don't want to engage in. I mean, and I, listen, I, I know, so what is the technique? And you, so you take it to another level of NMES? Is that what their suggestion would be? Um, no, 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 no. I'm just saying that the others that just do the... F- 59 seconds on and that are just poking at the surface of the skin. That's yeah. yeah. I I think, like I said, I'm not going to say, and I know there's here's the, here's the one term I like to discuss with our technology. There's no conflicting data with amp care. It's not a hundred percent, but there's not one out there that says, no, actually it actually created something worse. That has never happened with this technology. And I, but I'm not absolutely not saying this is all oh, everyone should use this. It's by no means used for everybody. It is a rehabilitation technique. It's a one of the tools you should, my opinion, have at least to understand so you can figure out whether it's beneficial or not. But you have to understand all of the technology. I think the, the problem with our discipline is we learn one thing and we don't want to learn another. And I think fees and floral, that argument's been going on for since my career. And it's, it's not, an, it's not an either or, you know, it's like no. neurologists don't go to a hospital and go, mm, I only want CT here. I don't believe in that MRI or, you know, I only yeah. use EEG. No, they, they have, they recognize their skills are including all, and they recognize where one would be beneficial over the other. 
So I think that's where I would hope our discipline starts to just understand the differences. If you can understand that, I, I read an article too from, in, you know, uh, it was on, there, listen, the, the the comical part to me is the, the Facebook and the, uh, the different um, specialized groups that are on social media. And I'm telling you the arguments, it's, it's comical because for some reason our society has this loyalty to one as opposed to just appreciating all, you know, and I think that and that happens with everything. So it's like somebody asks one or the other, and man, it's just it's it's pounce on the other as opposed to, hey, yes. you know, there's there's support for all. Okay, so folks, right there, I'm just gonna throw this out there and I've said it before. Um, and Rick said it earlier on when he talked about the SIG-13, the research articles. Okay, so here's the deal. Not everybody on those Facebook forums are speech pathologists. And just because they are a speech pathologist does not mean that they are highly skilled in the area that they are offering advice on, right? So if you want actual functional advice that is evidence-based, I highly recommend that you join ASHA SIG 13, Special Interest Group 13 for dysphagia and post your questions there because the greats in our field, and how many times have I said that, but the greats in our field get on there and they answer the questions and it is monitored by ASHA SIG 13 to ensure that the information being shared is accurate and current. So post a question there, folks. And also it's not it doesn't go ugly or scary or unprofessional. It's it's highly it's nerdy passionate debate, but it doesn't go south. Yeah. Yes. That's it's I think that's a perfect way to look at it. And listen, I remember and I I'm, I'm going to really date myself and I'm, I'm hesitant to even say it because I know people don't even remember this, but Netscape, I think, was the, the Google Chrome back in 91 <laughs> when the Internet was just becoming available. And, and there was um, there was a, a, a thought group where you could email questions. And it was very I, I was especially now I can only imagine these new clinicians. I, I think there, there, there's a lot of groups where like one is a newbie group. I think that you need to find areas where not only you're competent and you understand it. And if you're not go to those areas like SIG 13, where you can get that information and not be wary of, I'm going to post this question and I'm going to get a block, you know, annihilated for it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel like there was one thing that we didn't get to that we had to get to. I think that one of the other things that I think the questions that came out was uh, NMES or surface EMG. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. That was it. Yes. That's perfect. And I think my, my wrist example is another good example for uh, surface EMG. And this, this is just you know, my position on that. Surface EMG for swallowing is, is a little bit more complicated than what's presented sometimes. I think sometimes people say, well, this is... Uh, you get this signal and therefore that was the swallow and it was good or bad. And I think if I'm using the wrist example, the wrist extensors are very superficial. In fact, they're the most superficial. So when I put electrodes on my wrist extensor, if I'm doing those electrodes to capture muscle activity, which is what surface EMG does, that electromyographic response is capturing the electrical activity of the muscle. I can get a good signal because the most superficial muscles are my wrist extensors. So if I got a signal, it would be due to the wrist extensors. But if I put it under my chin and then my throat, my neck muscles, there's two very prominent superficial muscles before you get into the swallowing musculature, uh, the platysma, as well as the sternocleidomastoid, you get a signal from. So when you tell a patient, swallow really hard, and you get this great signal, and you say, great, that's awesome, that's exactly what I want you to do, it's it's complicated to know, was that the swallowing muscle activity you wanted, or was that the overflow from these muscles that were really not pertaining to the swallow? So it's it's a little more complicated, and I think, and that's another argument we have. Well, it's either surface EMG or NMES. And again, I, I think there's there's means for both. There's methods for both. But if you're talking about the difference between NMES and surface EMG, I look at it like this. If the muscle is a battery, the surface EMG is going to test 
how much signal that muscle or that battery is putting out. If, a mu if the muscle being a battery and you use NMES, it's going to charge that muscle. It's going to charge the battery. It, it doesn't need to require a, a check of the signal because you're getting all of that signal to occur if you're taking it to motor, if you take it to that depolarized nerve where the muscle contract. That's the difference between those two technologies. If you use surface EMG and you use traditional exercise, there's no reverse recruitment of that muscle fiber like you talked about earlier. You still have to work through and make it exerted, make it a, a, a high exertion or, or high dynamic activity before you start to work that type 2B muscle fiber within the swallow musculature. As opposed to with NMES, from the very first effortful swallow you do, you're capturing that type 2B as well as the type 2As and 1s. You're capturing them all. You don't have to worry whether you are or not. So hopefully that kind of helps clarify that. Some a lot of people get one of the main questions we get is, do you have surface EMG? And it's for us, it's more pressure. Pressure is going to be our feedback. And one thing I didn't comment on is the posture. And I know with the pediatric populations, that's it's an extremely important part of of the of the of the patient's picture. And I think we address that. We have some posture devices that we utilize as a chin-to-chest resistive exercise. But it not only does that, but it also puts that patient in the proper alignment. And proper alignment for those patients, I know your NDT clinicians and that group, it's very, very important. We work very closely with a company called uh, Restorative Medical. They do a lot of bracing. Torticollis, you mentioned, there's a lot of bracing capabilities within that I'll put that soft plug out there, but uh, Karen Bond and that company uh, helped us with our brace to maintain, because I, I, I would see patients go in for a, a modified barium swallow study. Their head, they had no posture, no head lift. They were not able to hold their head up. So they would put a lead glove on, hold their head up, evaluate them in that position and get a particular result. And they would go back to the facility and say, this is what's happening. But the patient would go back to the facility head down because they couldn't hold their head up. So how how do how did the patient do? Well, we couldn't find out because shoulder was in the view, whatever it is. But this posture device can create that benefit of okay, this is how they were evaluated. We know how they do here, so let's keep them in that elevated position while we're doing with meals. You know, and that's not for mastication necessarily because that would be a little weird having the maxilla on mandible. But if it's usually those patients that have poor posture or pretty low diet, they're they're thin puree or some type of a soft food, so there's not a lot of mastication, and you can can maintain a certain level of how you evaluate them there. So. Okay. One, can you please introduce me to these lovely people, because I would love to talk with them. Yes. I will email you for sure uh, a link to their to their website, and, and you'll get a lot. There's a lot of good pictures and cool things on there. Yes. All right. So, folks, they, um, Amp, Amp Care and their product, yes, they, I mean, Rick is the vice president of a product, but they, um, it is FDA approved and y'all were featured. In Let me clarify that. It's FDA cleared. There's a difference between clearance and approval. That's, that's just a semantic term, but it's important. Okay. Uh, so we have a clearance to market this device for, and this product actually, that all of it for dysphagia. That's the key term. And not all devices out there are FDA cleared. I know there's one out there that's got a, some weird placements and, you know, they're, they're not necessarily cleared how they are being marketed. So I think that's important to note for your clinicians to recognize that's a process that, that certainly these products need to go through. Yes, and and they have um, a lovely article: the effects of submental surface electrical stimulation on swallowing kinematics and healthy adults and error-based learning paradigm in the journal um, American Speech Language and Hearing Pathology. That's us, y'all, in two thousand and eighteen. You got some extra really impressive publications on your website, and then I found the article that you were talking about earlier: um, neuromuscular electrical stimulation is no more effective than usual care for treatment of primary dysphagia in children. Um, Mary, um, it was in Pediatric Pulmonology, Volume 46. Right there, I'm thinking, so I mean, it doesn't work. If I'm a clinician, it doesn't work any better. I'm like, okay, well, what did they use? What parameters, what placements? doesn't say it. No, it doesn't. And when, and when you go into it, and that's just it, is... It doesn't explain tertiary center. It was a series of 
children, but it doesn't tell you on on the article how long it was on. Yeah, no, this is rawr. <sighs> yes. So that's pretty typical, I think. And I think that, um, you know, we need to be more critical reviewers than just, uh, it, this is not a blanket approach. This isn't something. It's not just one thing. There's hundreds, if not several hundred, I'm going to go to the thousands maybe, of ways to use NMES and electrical current. And I think we need to follow the rules that have been set forth for us over six decades. So this isn't new, but we mm -hmm. do need to follow the rules. In swallowing, these muscles are they're, they're skeletal muscle. Histologically, they're smaller, but they work the same way. We can stimulate them and get, we've demonstrated in our data, you can get the benefits. Not for everyone, but it's certainly an effortful swallowing exercise. Yes, yes. Okay, so. And we do, just to, just to clarify all of that, I mean, we do an eight-hour ASHA CE. And in light of the pandemic, um, we've had to pivot a little bit on our capability. Our, our, I guess the, the fun show for us is to meet you live and to go and we've we, we travel all over the world, Japan, Ireland, UK, we're launching in Latin America this year, but the live show obviously has been somewhat put on hold, but we're starting, I think, and we're going to be in Newark in, in this month, later in this month, and hopefully San Antonio, but there's a lot of different changes that are going on there for social distancing, but we have an online on-demand version where you can just do 12 modules at your own pace. You get eight hours of advanced dysphagia CE. And we also do one that's Zoom-based. It's a webinar, and it's a little bit of a hybrid. There's some online work, and there's also some webinar live interaction. We try to limit those to 15 people each one so we can maintain a personal touch to them. But um, anybody has any questions, I'm happy to, to answer them if you can provide that. I don't know what the process is once we're finished with this. But. Well, and I was going to say, folks, um, this is something that – when you tell me when y'all said that y'all were up presenting to Dr. Bonnie Martin Harris's group, I was like, oh my God, that's like life goals. Like I want to grow up and be her. And I just. It's the Beatles, I, isn't it? You got to meet the Beatles. Yes, that's exactly. I mean, you got to meet her and then you studied under Jerry Lugerman. And I'm kind of like, I feel like I just need to like shake your hand in person when COVID is passed. Y'all there, I was so blown away by what they have and that um y'all are actually coming out and talking to my students which is really cool and y'all were able to do like a hybrid venture to come out and to talk to the students so that and i mean it's you know the certification is for adults but if you're interested in doing the peds research i went in on that and perfect i mean i think that would be ideal and um the the concept is there the safety is there it's just a matter of us teasing out, and I'm going to leave that to the professionals in that world to do. But I'm, we're we're open to that. We're always open. You know, our goal is to get a CPT code for this product, and we're not going to get that by just marketing product. We're going to get that by continuing the research world. So, okay, Rick, can you share your email address for people to reach you? Yes. So it's R Macadoo. That's R M C A D O O at Ampcare. A-M-P-C-A-R-E-L-L-C.com. You can also shoot a just a broad question to info at ampcarellc.com. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate y'all. I appreciate you being willing to um, share so candidly. And yeah, y'all throw the tomatoes at me, but please let's no longer mildly electrocute our <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm used to you. Let's, let's have a dialogue. Can't we all just get along? Have yes. some love. You know? oh, oh. That, that's probably the most Beatlicious statement. I love the capability to have actual dialogue and not text or social media posts. And it's just, I miss it. I miss seeing all of them and all of the, the clinicians out there and moving around. So I really appreciate you uh, providing us this opportunity and letting me do it. And, uh, Russ and Rhonda and Vince and myself are uh, very appreciative for the opportunity to be able to talk about what we've been doing for a long time. This is, it's amazing. This is, this has and will change folk stars. And that brings my heart joy. So 
Um, yes. All right. There you go. Let me let me um let me switch this over to questions. That was a fast one hour. That's was, that was a <laughs> an hour, friend. Oh my stars! Hang on one second, okay? Okay. All right. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Mm -hmm.